we have a responsibility to make the college a lifelong learning engine. We have a responsibility to make higher education something that people don't just do once at the start of their career and then never really return to other than for, you know, football games and donations. Like that can't be the relationship that we have with people after they graduate. The relationship that we have with people after they graduate has to be one that continues to be based in learning access. It has to be continued to be based in value. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi. I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Vice President of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us. You, the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together. And it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo. And this is The Future of Work. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Work podcast. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo. Today, we will learn about the evolution, one of the best platforms for post-secondary professionals to share their insights through a non-traditional lens. We will also talk about what topics have been the most popular since the start of the pandemic and how other higher education professionals can really contribute to the platform. With that said, we would like to welcome Amrit Alawalia, the Editor-in-Chief at The Evolution, a modern campus illumination. For over 11 years, Amrit has worked at The Evolution, an online newspaper exclusively published by and for those who understand higher education. Amrit works personally with every contributor at The Evolution to produce the content that has supported the site's rise to becoming the top resource for non-traditional higher education. He regularly speaks on topics related to the changing higher education environment at conferences across Canada and the United States and advises colleges and university leaders to help frame strategic visions for their institutions. We welcome Amrit. How are you? Hey, Salvatrice. I'm well. How are you? Good. Good to chat with you again. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun last time. I'm so glad we got the chance to connect again so soon. That's right. That's right. Now the tables have turned. I'm interviewing you, right? So. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry, I won't ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get started. You know, I know very well who you are and what the evolution is, but I always love to ask this question to our practitioners out there and those within this arena is really, you know, share with us kind of what led you to this work and what led you in journalism and why education? Why did you pick education as a point of interest? 
For sure. Well, I've always loved storytelling. Storytelling has always been something that's been interesting to me. And I think storytelling is the best way for us to start normalizing some of the things that may seem a little odd or might seem a little outside the norms. It's through stories that people can really start to connect and interact with ideas that are a little outside their scope. So my own story is actually not mine. It's my mom's. I'm based in Canada. Both my parents are new immigrants. I'm the first generation of my family born in Canada. And, you know, my father came over in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s to earn his doctorate. You know, my mom and dad got married in the mid 80s. My mom is from India in Bombay. So she came over as well. Now she had her bachelor's in chemistry from the University of Bombay. She'd worked for five years as a air hostess with British Airways, loved math, loved science, You don't need me to tell you she's super smart, but super, super smart. So she gets to Canada, goes to the employment office and says, you know, this is my background. This is what I'm good at. Obviously, like well-trained in crisis management, well-trained in customer engagement, customer service, like all these soft skills. Plus, she's got a technical background. And they said, cool. So you could probably work at a diner. Because, you know, you were a stewardess. Oh my goodness. You know, she was like, well, no, that's not a thing that's interesting to me. So she went, she got her accounting licenses. She became a certified accountant. She eventually got a job with the federal government of Canada. She worked for 35 some years at various executive levels within the Canadian Federal Public Service. And the entire time you know, continued to take courses to, you know, first to pursue her own interest, to advance her career. I actually remember she earned a graduate level credential in accounting when I was three and she didn't do convocation. We went to Vermont. I distinctly remember that her entire life, she was a non-traditional student as she started to approach retirement. She started doing professional photography certifications because that was something that interested her as maybe a post-retirement job. So my story isn't my story. My story is how do I make life easier for people like my mom? The hurdles that she had to overcome to just do the basics are something that I think, you know, those kinds of obstacles exist for so many people. And, you know, both in Canada and the United States, these are economies that are built on immigrant communities. These are economies that are built on social mobility. So having the opportunity, as I do, to highlight the work of folks that work with non-traditional learners, to work with folks that develop programming and develop institutional divisions designed specifically for workforce development and socioeconomic mobility is something that I take a lot of pride in and kind of comes back again to that idea of story storytelling. The more stories from people like you that we can share, the more opportunity we have for folks that might see higher education through a very specific lens Mm -hmm. to see that work through a much broader lens and can serve so many more people than the people we tend to serve. Yeah, I really love that. Parallel stories, you know, the first generation and, you know, I too have an interest. I never realized that my interest in higher education was going to be so strong. I never saw myself in higher education yeah. until, you know, you just start to look at what's around you and then you, you know, look, you just grow up, right? So you grow up and, <laughs> yeah. and you start to say like, gosh, you know, my career has taken me here and mm-hmm. I'm so incredibly grateful just like you are to be in this space because I too, first gen parents valued education because Yeah, well, they came to the States as farmers and, you know, your parents were extremely educated coming into this country. My parents were not. And so they, they said, look, you know, we want a better life. Both parents want a better life. 
for their families. So to share that story and for the evolution to kind of be that source of that narrative and the storytelling and how do we innovate within higher ed, how do we cater to the non-traditional student is really, really important. And I'm super happy that the evolution is really kind of taking pride around that and saying, look, like this needs to be our focus. You know, for those who don't understand what really the evolution is, tell us a little bit more about the evolution and how it kind of got started, because that'll be helpful to kind of frame this conversation a little more. Yeah, it's valuable context. And it's something that I'm super, super proud of. So first of all, for those of you listening, it doesn't come across in the audio. We spell evolution with three L's and the L's stand for lifelong learning, which is some insight. Oh, I didn't know that. Listeners. Yeah, that's why we have three L's is for lifelong learning. So we had the concept in 2011, we launched in 2012. So I was the founding editor of the publication. Basically, we were launched by a company that's now called Modern Campus. And at the time, it was because there was no one really talking about what's happening in the continuing workforce education space. If we think back to 2011, 2012, you know, the economy was just coming out of the recession. We were in that sort of early recovery phase. So all those students who'd come into higher education because they'd lost their jobs, because they were in a challenging economic period, all of a sudden the job market was opening up, they were going back to work. But at the same time, the state appropriations that had been cut drastically over the course of the recession hadn't recovered yet. So you had this period where sort of higher education's call it magic carpet started to descend a little bit because during that period where state appropriations were declining, enrollments were growing so that the tuition and the fees kind of made up that delta. So 2011, folks are going back to work and we had this concept that we wanted to give people a space outside of conferences to talk about the things that they found interesting in the continuing ed world. You know, those conversations that you have in the hallways and, you know, interesting ideas for programming, interesting ideas for support and student services. So we wanted to make that a 24-7 conversation. I distinctly remember this. About five months after we launched, we thought, you know what would be a good idea is if we knew who our subscribers were. <laughs> so, you know, we'd been running for about five months. We were still a very fledgling publication. We were fortunate in that, you know, a lot of people who really could have published their work anywhere decided to trust us. Mm. You know, we're talking folks like Kathy Sandine, who at the time was the Dean of Extension at UCLA, folks like Ed Abeda from UC San Diego, Wayne Smoots, who at the time was the Dean of World Campus at Penn State. We had some phenomenal people share their perspectives. So we looked at our subscriber base. We thought it would be folks from the continuing Edward. And as it turned out, we were serving largely provosts and CIOs and presidents. And, you know, we thought that was kind of weird. So we started to look into it and realized, well, at a time when higher education institutions were struggling for operating expenses, were struggling to generate enrollments, were starting for the first time in the industry's history to recognize the concept of competition, we were publishing articles by continuing ed leaders talking about what it looked like to compete for enrollments, how student centricity can be a differentiator, why programming needs to be relevant to student needs, why workforce outcomes are valuable to academic programming. And I think what crystallized for me at that moment and what's kind of driven our editorial philosophy since then is that the higher education industry can operate like a business while still benefiting the learners it serves. It's, we've always looked at that as a dichotomy, as a binary, either you're a business or you're serving learners, but you can't be a business that serves learners. And if you look at most businesses, it is in their best interest to treat their consumers with respect. It's in their best interest to serve the needs of their consumers. And then there's benefit to that in terms of revenue and, and lifetime value of engaging that customer for the long term. And there's no reason why those principles shouldn't work in higher education as well. So that idea really started to take root at that time when we were looking at our subscriber base, because we realized that those are the exact people who were starting to pay attention to the publication. It wasn't just other continuing ed leaders who wanted to know about continuing ed. It was 
senior executives who were trying to understand how they could change their mindset about what the institution could be. What a beautiful way to kind of pivot into something that you weren't really anticipating, you know? It's so funny because you mentioned yourself, you know, you didn't see your career leading to continuing ed or to higher right. ed. And I certainly didn't as well. That was a surprising twist. It was a twist of fate. <laughs> and I think if you talk to almost anyone in continuing education, they wouldn't say that, you know, well, when I was five years old and someone asked me what I wanted to do and I wanted right. to be a dean of continuing education, like that's not a thing. <laughs> Most of us found our way here by circumstance, but then sure. when we landed and when we found our spot, it's impossible not to fall in love with the sector. Right. And it feels like home because we can it relate. Does. Yeah. Yeah. It's very human. It is kind of interesting as you start to think about like how folks wind up in this space, how folks build a passion for this work. And that's yeah. really a lot of what we're doing right now. In fact, we're on our podcast. We're about to launch a series with institutional presidents who came out of continuing education. Fantastic. And the idea there is basically looking at this exact concept of why is higher education starting to pivot to becoming more like a massive continuing ed department. And it comes mm -hmm. back to this core idea that, you know, there's DNA within CE about how to treat learners, how to think about the institution, how to think about the department with a mix of student centricity and a business lens and trying to find that middle ground. So anyway, that was a very long way of saying we launched the evolution because we wanted to normalize some of the stuff that at the time was really out of left field. It was really stuff that no one was comfortable talking about. It was stuff that, you know, you'd say, oh, students are customers, but you'd say it in a hushed voice and you'd right. really make sure right. you knew who was around you when you were saying it. And as a publication, we didn't want to have the debate. We wanted to come in and say, yes, students or customers, what does that mean? That was our guiding philosophy for years. And it still is to this day is that we believe that students are customers and everything we publish is written with that assumption already established, right? So now it's a question of, well, what do you do when your students are customers? What does that mean in terms of how do you structure services? How do you do pricing? How do you do financial aid? How do you credential them? What kind of life cycle do your programs need to run on? How do you do program review cycles? How do you interact with the creditors? All these things are through the lens of your student is a customer and as opposed right. to trying to debate whether or not our students are customers. And again, I don't think that's a controversial view anymore, but I think it's because, you know, publications like ours just decided that we were tired of the argument <laughs> and, and kind of just moved past it. Right. It forces us to examine our approach differently. Even yeah. though when we say, for example, I'll use your example about customer versus student. Yes, the customer is the student. And the student is the customer. But just in the language that we use and the words that we choose forces us to examine like a holistic approach. So when we say maybe just the word student, it's this very transactional, it's one-sided. Sometimes that's how I feel. Like it just feels very just kind of linear, super linear. But when yeah. we use the word customer, as you did, and coming from the private sector myself, it forces us to examine the experience holistically. Right. And so that we're looking at things through a lens of everything you just mentioned. Right. We use product cycle, program cycle, you know, yeah. um, customer service, so all those things, all the wraparound things that we talk about. It's important. It's a topic that's fresh on my mind. So this is our 10 year anniversary. You know, we first Congrats. published. Thank you. We published our first article in January of 2012. And so a lot of my time over the past few months is just out of nostalgia, kind of going back through our archives a little bit and looking at some of the older articles that I feel have really helped to establish our vision. And there was a piece by Heather Chakiris 
and she's now at Excelsior College in upstate New York. At the time that she wrote this, she was the chief student experience officer for UCLA Extension. And she was writing about the idea of how do you create a high quality customer experience in a post-secondary environment. I'd encourage everyone to go and read the article themselves and I'm just going to share one thought of hers with you. And she took on the idea of what do students as customers mean, right? Because oftentimes when you bring that up, the first thing that, you know, someone would say back is the customer is always right. Well, that doesn't work here. Mm -hmm. And you'd go into this diatribe about, oh, Mm -hmm. they're customers outside the classroom, but not inside the classroom or whatever. And she said, look, forget that. Treating students as customers, and this is a quote, treating students as customers means we don't force them through arbitrary processes that are intentionally complex. And that concept has absolutely guided the way that I've thought about this topic for nearly a decade, because that's it. That's it in a nutshell. It's just a question of respect. That's right. And speaking of content, help me understand. So the evolution publishes these articles. How are you vetting the content? You know, because anyone and anyone can say anything, right? But to stay true to the mission of evolution and true to its core mission, how are you vetting the content? It's an interesting question because we think of ourselves as a big opinions page. And to a certain extent, we are not a neutral party. I recognize that in the world of journalism, there's an expectation that a journalist is supposed to be neutral. And I think you could look at any publication to know that that's not at all the case. Mm -hmm. But we are a lens. So we have a perspective. We have an opinion, which is, you know, we believe the higher education space fundamentally has to change to serve the demographic it serves. We believe there's an enrollment cliff on the horizon that's backed by research. We believe that treating students like customers is the best way for post-secondary institutions to meet the crux of their mission. So we do look for contributors that speak to that broad philosophy through their particular Mm -hmm. lens. We tend to reach out to folks, we tend to find folks, and we've built a contributor community, which by the way, has about 2,500 now higher education leaders from colleges and universities across North America. You know, an incredibly diverse cross-section of post-secondary institutions represented in our contributor base. Mm -hmm. And the goal is how many diverse opinions can we find that share different points of view on the same topic? And the more layers that we can add to the diversity of our contributor base, all speaking to different different parts of the same core, the more we can actually start to form a vision of what that core looks like. And in aggregate, to a certain extent, I'd be interested actually to do a word cloud study on every piece ever published in the evolution, because it'd be fascinating to me to see what kinds of terms it would actually be. It's an incredible source of data. There's some 4,600 articles that we've published over the past decade. So vetting, we don't do peer review. We don't have, you know, a double blind review process. Everything that gets published comes through myself and my associate editor. Excellent. Is there anything percolating out there? Is there anything percolating that you said, hey, Salvatrice, you know, we really ought to be paying attention to this. It just hasn't been. Yeah, I'd say like from a trends perspective, there's some fascinating stuff happening. And it's frustrating because if I think about, again, I'm feeling very nostalgic today. Like If I think about like some of the stuff our publication's done, like we were publishing about badging in 2012. We published about competency-based learning in 2014. Like we tended to be well ahead of curves. And I think what's fascinating about where we are today is that we're seeing some of these ideas that were super, super peripheral becoming core concepts for what the future institution is going to look like. So what I think is really interesting about where we are right now is how we're starting to define these ideas that have historically been experimental and how we're starting to bring those ideas into the core of the institution. So the question becomes a balancing act between what's the thing that made that idea necessary in the first place 
And what's the thing that's going to make it legitimate in the eyes of the academy, right? right? And that idea of legitimacy, that idea of defining what rigor looks like, what quality looks like, mm. what a credential means are some of these topics that I think are going to absolutely control the conversation in, in the higher education space for probably the next five to seven years. Because we recognize that credentialing needs to change. And we recognize that micro-credentials and that competency-based credentials and alternative approaches to assessing and awarding knowledge, we recognize that these are becoming increasingly important. We recognize that it's becoming increasingly common. The question is, how do we strike that balancing act between the necessity of launching them in the first place and the necessity of creating something that may makes sense in the context of what the institution does. So right. what I think is fascinating right now is this year, and you know, my background is more in the continuing ed world. That's where our publication is rooted. I've been to two conferences this year about micro-credentialing where there were a combined seven people at both conferences that are from the continuing ed world. And it wow. was mostly registrars getting together to talk about how do we yeah. do micro-credentialing. And I did a session at both conferences that was basically saying on each of your campuses, I guarantee you there's a department that's been doing micro-credentialing for 30 years because that's the crux of what CE is all about. So I think the future, the next five to 10 years is going to be shaped by a de-siloing of the post-secondary institution, of an intentional internal collaboration between the administrative structures that have defined how the institution operates and the continuing mm -hmm. ed world that's had to balance both development, delivery, and management of programming. Because in the main campus, those three functions tend to be separated, right? They right. tend to be siloed out because... Their massive responsibilities for the continuing ed world, we've really asked the same people to do all three of those things simultaneously. Yep. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how we navigate that transition of responsibility. How do we navigate the transition of enrollment management responsibilities from a staff team that's very consumer oriented to one that may be more process oriented? And how do we find right. a middle ground between a customer service mentality and maybe a more process oriented mentality? Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to see is that the institutions themselves are going to start to seem to feel more like what continuing ed divisions feel like because the students we're going to be serving will be increasingly older. They'll be more and more experienced as consumers and they'll recognize that they operate in a marketplace that, you know, they have flexibility and freedom of choice that they've never had before, right? We just went through the first ever recession in the last hundred or so years where enrollment in post-secondary education did not go up. And it's not that That's people right. weren't looking for education access. It's that they went to boot camps and they went to YouTube. They got credentialed in totally different ways than we've ever really experienced before. And we tried to run a playbook that we ran during the Great Recession and said, uh-oh. So this is, I think, higher education in general. This is not a micro trend. This is going to be a macro trend. I think we're going to see the post-secondary space look and feel more like a continuing ed unit. Now, do you think that that was forced due to the pandemic? Or do you think that that was this natural? We were already kind of going in that way. Yeah, I think we were already going that way. I think the pandemic and... I See, this is the problem. The pandemic is one thing. The stay-at-home order is something else. Right? Yeah. It's a related thing. But, yeah. you know, people getting sick didn't lead to the transformation of higher ed. It was the stay at home order because that changed the way that we thought about our interaction with physical spaces. And I think Good like point. the trend of online learning had been progressing for decades. I think there's an organization that was doing an annual report on uptake and enrollments in distance programming. And every year for the 10 years they've been tracking this, the percentage of learners that had been going online was 
ticking upwards steadily. Hmm. Now, obviously, it went to 100% in 2020. Right. You can probably disregard that number. But up to that point, it was showing that, you know, about half of students were already hybrid students in that way. They were taking some distance and some on-premise. So on the one hand, we'd already been moving in this direction of students seeing their options as being national, global. Mm -hmm. But what I think what the pandemic did was accelerate the trend of people looking to alternatives. Right. Because for the most part, you had people out of work who really had no business being out of work. The stay-at-home orders led to the greatest spike in unemployment in the history of either of our nations. More people were unemployed in the month and a half after the stay-at-home orders were issued than were unemployed in the entirety of the Great Recession. So when you think about that in context, like that is a massive foundational shift in the way that people spend their time. And again, these aren't people who could have seen that coming. This wasn't a thing that was slowly boiling over time. That was mm -hmm. pandemic, stay-at-home order, you don't have a job anymore. So what right. folks were looking for was very different. Folks were looking for very short-term offerings that were going to help them get to a job. And in that one year, we saw the percentage of adults considering education who preferred short-term or alternative credentials go from 50% in 2019 to 68% in 2020. That is a massive, massive shift wow. in the way that consumers yep. are thinking from half to two thirds in one year. And that largely came because that group of people suddenly needed short-term options to get that new job, to get that job they could do at a distance or work remotely that wasn't really affected by the pandemic, that they didn't need to be in a physical space to do. So I think where before we'd talk about the short-term credentialing space and we'd say, well, the consumer doesn't really understand it. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think consumers have a much clearer vision of the kinds of education offerings that are out there than they might have had once before. And it's incumbent upon us post-secondary institutions, especially public post-secondary institutions, to fulfill our missions by making those kinds of options available to people. If people are saying they want short-term outcomes-oriented learning offerings, then it's a responsibility of the public post-secondary institution as having a community responsibility to fulfill that need. And if that means like we're going to create something that's stackable so that when that individual has a need for further education, they can come back, great. And if it means we're going to offer it as a one-off because that's what the community needs, that's great too. But we can't just cede an entire sector to the private sector and say, well, you know, we don't do that, so we're not going to do that. That's not how right. a public organization of any type should work. Now, having said that, are you finding that there's an opportunity and or, or maybe they're one of the same, an issue kind of coming out of this state? I'm going to call stay-at-home order because you made it very clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like the way you separated that. So coming out of the stay-at-home order where the world's kind of coming back. The world did come back, but it's going back a little bit yeah. slower. Anything pressing that you're saying, hey, Salvatore, we need to address this in, within higher education based on what your findings and contributors are? This is, I think, and this is, you know, a question we've been asking folks over the past year or so. I am very worried that this next generation is going to be very, very nervous about online programming. About online programming? Yeah. Now, this is mm. flying in the face of everything I said five seconds ago. You have an entire generation from the age of four to the age of 23 now who for a year of their life had to completely change the way they interacted with education offerings. And that transition was not to what we in the higher education space would consider high quality online learning, right? There was no facilitated instructor to learner or learner to instructor participation or interaction. Right. There was no facilitated learner to learner or peer to peer interaction. It was lectures on Zoom. And, you know, if the memes are to be believed on Reddit or whatnot, it was kids being disciplined in their own houses for drinking water because they were on Zoom during a class. That's not a positive online learning experience. Yeah. And 
And what I'm genuinely nervous about is you'll have an entire generation of digital natives who fundamentally don't think online learning works. Because what they were exposed to was really bad quality remote education. So that, I'd say, is something that we need to take very seriously as a sector, is how do we reintroduce that generation to high-quality, well-defined, well-structured, consciously-built online programming that does all those great things that we know online programming can do. Absolute worst-case scenario is that we have an entire generation of digital natives who are more comfortable with technology than any generation in history move forward and say, that's all good, but... For the learning part, it has to be in classrooms. Like it would limit their capacity to expand, to upskill, to reskill. It would limit their access to education so massively that I think it would be a disservice to our industry. And beyond that, it would mean a return to the highly regional approaches to education, which are incredibly valuable in some circumstances, but also create this insularity of what we consider quality, Mm -hmm. right? right? We're starting to move to a point now where you can look at access to education as being either regional or global, depending on what an individual looks for at a point in time. And the access to both is what makes it so interesting, that you can get local context on a global learning opportunity, or that you can get global access to learning that you otherwise wouldn't have. So as we're creating this like balancing between global access to education for those who want it and local access to high quality learning opportunities. I think at the same time, colleges and universities are in a position where they can start seeing how learners are being engaged with at other institutions, right? Because what our value proposition isn't just the offering of programming. It's not just access to learning opportunities. It's the experience that goes around it. It's our capacity to engage students. It's our capacity to build relationships with those learners. It's our capacity to maybe take programming or take knowledge that's accessible in one place and making it contextual to those who are in our neighborhoods. So that's where I think is, you know, the power of online learning can really come from is how do we create local context for global learning? And by the same token, how do we create local access for folks who need to be served? So that's where I think, you know, there's so much power to what online learning can do. And it's really important that we find a way to bridge that gap for all those kids who might have had a really bad experience with online programming over the past few years. Right. This is the Future of Work podcast, and you've given these beautiful golden nuggets of information. And, you know, I feel like they're little treasures and we can talk forever. And I know that we'll continue this dialogue at some point, but I wanted to kind of propose this question to you is if there's one thing you'd want our listener to understand about the future of work and where we need to be within higher education, you know, as we just continue to mold and evolve, what would that one thing be? For sure. It's a simple concept that I'm going to explain unnecessarily complicatedly. Computing power okay. doubles. <laughs> computing power doubles every 18 months. The concept in Moore's Law, as computer processing power doubles, the capacity for tasks that were once manual can be automated and what human work looks like starts to change fundamentally. So in this environment where access to learning has to be shorter term, the future of work, I think, is going to be defined by more consistent access to upskilling and reskilling. The structure, the definition of human-specific work is going to be constantly evolving. I think if there's one thing that folks take away after listening to this episode, it's that we have a responsibility to make the college a lifelong learning engine. We have a responsibility to make higher education something that people don't just do once at the start of their career and then never really return to other than for, you know, 
football games and donations. Like that can't be the relationship that we have with people right. after they graduate. The relationship that we have with people after they graduate has to be one that continues to be based in learning access. It has to be continued to be based in value. You know, that's our value proposition. That's the impact that post-secondary institutions can have on their communities in an environment where there's fewer and fewer 18-year-olds every year. That's where I think we start to see a change in the way that people interact with learning. So that's, if there's one thought to take away, it's, you know, look at your own institution, look at your own environment, look at even, you know, if you're coming from industry, look at your own relationship with local post-secondary institutions and ask yourself, what's one thing that we could do to make this space better for adults? That's in a nutshell. It's how do we make upskilling and reskilling more part of what we do? You're absolutely right. It is simple, but yet very complex, right? When we've got multiple gadgets kind of running this engine, you know, and we really appreciate that. This has been such a lovely, enthusiastic, high energy conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed our dialogue today, Emirate. As I said, I'm sure that we'll have more of them. For our listener, if they wanted to connect with you and learn more about the evolution or potentially even contribute to the evolution, What's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Visit evolution.com. That's again, evolution with three L's.com. We publish every business day. So you'll always see there's something new or different on there. Please do subscribe on the sidebar. If you go to our evolution.com homepage on the sidebar, there's a tab that says get the newsletter. We send a newsletter out every Monday that just kind of recaps the stuff we published over the past week. And yeah, you can absolutely contribute to the evolution. Again, visit evolution.com. There's a contribute link. You can also feel free to shoot an email to info at evolution.com. And yeah, we're more than happy to explore whatever topics are top of mind. So please do get in touch. It's a contributor run publication. We are just a conduit. So feel free to reach out at any time. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now get back to work, Amrit. Like, gosh, right? <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much. We'll chat soon. For sure. Hey, bye now. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.